all had this experience growing up where we did something that our parents used to do growing up that we said we would never do, right? We said something that we said, I'll never say that, and then you say it and you go, oh my gosh, I sound just like my dad, or oh my gosh, I sound just like my mother, right? We've all had these experiences before, and for me, it's really strange the day that I realized that my dad and I have the same like vocal registry, even though he's definitely much more Southern than me and much more gruff in his voice, when I say certain things, I'm like, oh my gosh, that sounded just like my dad. It makes me just kind of freak out for a minute. You know, that's just such a weird experience I think we've all had. And I'm like, when did I start sounding like my dad, right? I never intended to. It's not like I practiced. It's not like I tried to. I didn't do it on purpose or intentionally. And sometimes I think we end up becoming someone or something that we didn't intend on becoming. We do certain things and we have certain behaviors. We don't even realize it. It's not like we practiced it. It's not like we tried to become this. But slowly over time, all of a sudden we realize we've become something we didn't intend on, much like Jonah. Let's go over to the book of Matthew and the fifth chapter. And let's see what Jesus taught us about bitterness as we're wrapping up our series, What If Jesus Was Serious? We've been asking this rhetorical question over these past few weeks as we've been examining what Jesus said in contrast to the life of Jonah. And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Isn't this interesting? That Jesus himself says, it's more important for you to reconcile than it is for you to actually bring a gift or a sacrifice, an offering of worship to the Lord. And as I see other things Jesus has said, when he taught his disciples to pray, he said that, Lord, forgive us our debts as we do what? We forgive our debtors, right? He tells us that actually our prayers will be hindered if we are walking in unforgiveness. And here he tells us that if we have anger in our heart, it's basically equated with us committing the sin of murder, something we would not do, something we wouldn't want to do, something we wouldn't intentionally do, but it's the same heart motive. It's the same thing that causes the murderer to act out. It's the same positioning of the heart that God still looks at as sin. And he said that actually your sacrifice, your offering to the Lord, he would rather you wait. Before you give it, make sure that your heart is right. Because we can see in Jesus' teaching that holding on to anger, it actually interferes and it hurts our relationship with God. It causes static. It causes interference. Because it keeps us thinking that as long as I keep doing these things, God is pleased. But this thing on the back burner that I don't want God to touch and I don't want God to deal with is okay for me to hang on to. And God is saying, no, it's not. This is not okay. You can do all these things right. You can keep bringing your sacrifices to the Lord. And he says, you know what? I don't want your sacrifices. Ooh, I don't like hearing that. I don't like knowing that God 
doesn't want my sacrifice until I deal with this heart issue. But Jesus himself says that that's how God values and views this sin of bitterness, this sin of anger. It's a very weighty thing in the eyes of the Lord. Jesus said, you guys just thought before, as long as I don't kill anybody, I'm okay. And Jesus said, if you actually have that hatred and that anger in your heart towards someone, he said, you're actually liable for that. And I don't want your sacrifices until you deal with that. I don't want you to think that just because you continue to offer worship to me, that it's gonna be sweet to me because I know what's going on in your heart. Bitterness is a poison that hurts that relationship with God and it turns us into something that we didn't intend on becoming. It turns us into actually this person that we didn't mean to actually be and the dangerous part of it is that it can be subtle and we actually think that we're the hero and we think we're the good guy and we think the other person is the villain but actually we've become the villain because of the hatred and the anger and the bitterness in our heart. This is what happened to Jonah. So let's go over to Jonah in the fourth chapter and let's close out this series as we read Jonah chapter four here. Verse one says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. What displeased Jonah? The fact that God showed mercy on the Ninevites. God shows mercy on his enemies, his sworn enemies, people who had caused him pain, people who had hurt him, people who had hurt his family, people who had hurt uh, his nation for generations. And he felt that he had every right to want to see them wiped off the face of the earth. He didn't want them to receive the message of forgiveness. He didn't want them to even have the chance to be able to repent. And so he did not want to go and do this. He did not want to go and preach this message because he knew that there's a chance, no matter how small it was, there's a chance that they might repent. And they ended up repenting and they were mourning over their sin. They began to fear the Lord. They began to take the word of the Lord seriously when God used Jonah to preach that five-word sermon all throughout that big and great city. Jonah was walking along, saying those five words over and over again, speaking that oracle of God and that there was gonna be destruction come to them. And he didn't even say, if you repent, God will relent. He didn't even preach that part of the sermon. He just said, there's destruction coming. And the Ninevites take a chance on God. And out of their fear of the Lord, they began to reach out to him. And they began to say, God, we're taking you seriously. We truly believe you're gonna destroy us. They didn't laugh in his face and said, bring it on, we're big and powerful. No, they actually said, God, will you forgive us? We are recanting our evil ways, even to the point, remember the story last week that the animals were even instructed to put on sackcloth and be there in ashes. They're like, even our, our pets are like, you know, in this state of mourning and repentance. That's how extreme they took it. And they were so serious about this and God turned away and now Jonah's angry. And he's mad because he knew this was gonna happen. Listen to what happens next. Verse two, he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. As if God didn't know why Jonah went that way. It's like Jonah takes this opportunity to let God know, you know all that trouble that was caused? you know, with the ship and, and the fish and all that and me not wanting to obey, you know, this is like exactly why, right? He's like throwing it back in God's face. And he's like showing God, this is why all this is, is happening anyways. He's basically saying, God, this is all your fault, right? For I knew that you're a gracious God, you're merciful, you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take from me my life 
for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? <laughs> like, oh man, you want to talk about, that would make me mad if I heard that question asked. After I was just was that angry with my words to God, he's like, hey, is, is this going good for you, buddy? Tell me how's that anger thing working out for you. <laughs> Here Jonah is just, he's just, just, just expressing his anger towards God for relenting from this disaster to the point to where he says, it's better for me to die. I would rather die than have to live with the fact knowing that my enemies were forgiven. That's pretty intense bitterness, wouldn't you agree? That's pretty deep-rooted bitterness when we see Jonah saying that he would, be, uh, he would rather die. Verse 5, Jonah went out to the city and he sat on the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So he built like a little pouty hut. Because it's hot. And obviously this little hut that he builds is not sufficient. Because it was really hot. And it was kind of creating a little bit of shade for him. And it wasn't really fully taking care of his needs. And I think this is a beautiful picture of grace. Because we in our own efforts try to seek out relief on our own and we try to seek out shelter on our own and he constructed something with his own hands but then God does something, grace, the gospel which Jonah could not do with his own hands. He caused a plant to grow immediately right there and it must have been something to marvel about and see and it must have been a huge plant because it created a lot of comfort and a lot of shade for Jonah in the middle of that scorching heat. And so it's like what Jonah could do wasn't sufficient, but then God did something Jonah couldn't do in that moment, and that's the gospel, and that's grace where we try to fix it and we try to give ourselves relief in our own strength, and God does something we couldn't do, and he did that through sending Jesus Christ, amen? And so we see now Jonah is sheltered, and Jonah is happy over that because verse 6, the Lord appointed this plant to come over Jonah that it might shade his head and, ex and save him from discomfort. So Jonah, he was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So Jonah's excited that God's grace was extended to him. Isn't this interesting? That this guy is excited to once again be a recipient of the grace of God, but he doesn't want anyone else to receive it, especially those who have hurt him, those who have wounded him those who have caused problems for people that he loves and cares about. He doesn't want his enemies to receive that same type of grace, but boy, he sure is willing to receive it, even in the form of just a little bit of shade, even in the form of a little bit of relief. He's exceedingly glad about the plant. But then the dawn came up the next day, and God appointed a worm accompanied by ACDC that attacked the plant, <laughs> and it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that, it was, that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. So here's, he's asking that he might die again. It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? The end. Strangest ending to a story ever. 
It's like if you were reading a bedtime story to your children. Should I not save these people of 120,000 and all their cows? Good night, honey. Well, what happened? I don't know. That's how it ends. Super weird. It's a strange ending. And God's saying, hey, uh, should I not be actually more gracious on these, these living beings than, and these people than you mourning and weeping and being angry over this plant? If Jonah's getting that upset about a plant, obviously he's very distracted from the purpose in which God has created him. He's obviously dealing with a lot of bitterness and it's only grown stronger. And it's gotten to a place to where he's so angry, he's begging God to kill him. That's how angry he is at his enemies. Jonah had evil in his heart, but he thought he was doing the work of the Lord. My concern is, that we as people of God can get so self-righteous that we think that we're actually doing good because of what we do for God, the offerings we bring to God, the sacrifice that we bring to him, the things that we're doing that we feel like God is pleased with, but yet we're hanging on to this unforgiveness and we're hanging on to this bitterness and we're hanging on to what happened last year, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, what happened when we were a kid, whatever the case may be, and we hang on to it with such a fierce intensity that it has attached itself to our identity and we're scared to let it go because we don't know who we are without this wound. That we don't know who we are without this bitterness. That we don't know who we are because we've talked about it so much and we've rehashed it and we've relived it in our head so many times and we've shared it with so many people that other people that weren't even there are offended with us and for us. And it's spread, it's spread and it's, it's affected so many other people now. And it's become this toxic thing in our lives and it's changed us, but we think we're still the good guys. And we think we're still doing the work of the Lord because we're still offering sacrifices. Well, we just read that Jesus said, keep your sacrifices. Deal with this issue that's going on in your heart. Actually seek reconciliation. Reconciliation is a tough thing because you can get offended while pursuing reconciliation. And it's like the thing you were offended about that you're trying to reconcile with the person for, if they don't respond the way you want them to respond, it's like you get re-offended. You go to them and you finally step up and you take the courage and you go to talk to this person and you humble yourself and you approach them in a spirit of humility and you want to talk to them and they don't respond like you want them to respond. Has that ever happened to anybody before? Once, twice, three times, right? We've all seen those types of things happen, and then you can get reoffended all over again. And then all of a sudden you put yourself up on a pedestal and you take the moral high ground. Well, I'm just a better Christian than they are. I don't even know if they love Jesus. I hadn't seen them in church in a while anyways. I knew if I went to them and told them the truth that they would react that way. I shouldn't even have tried. I should just pray for them. Will you all just help me pray for them right now? God, I pray you would just, just, just do whatever you got to do. Do whatever you got to do to soften their heart. I mean, if it's got to be bad, Lord. I mean, if, it's, if they got to lose their job, if they gotta, if they got to get stricken with some sort of sickness, if they got to get whatever you got to do, Lord. And we start like having this evil wickedness in our heart, and we think we're doing something for God. And God's not pleased. Because just like Jonah, God sees our heart. 
God is not interested in what we do on the outside and the offerings that we bring. He's looking at the heart. He even says that, hey, if you haven't killed someone, that's great. Good for you. But have you ever had this deep level of anger towards your brother? He's going, yes, same thing in the eyes of God. We don't believe that. We don't like that. But what if Jesus was serious when he said that? What if Jesus meant that? Of course, that's a rhetorical question because he did mean that. And we see this playing out in the life of Jonah because Jonah, still at the end of this story that we have, thinks he's the good guy. And we know Jonah still thinks he's the good guy because what does he do? He goes and sits on a hill and still waits for God to destroy them. It's like God not listening, la, 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 la. He's not even listening to God at this point. And he's just waiting for fire and brimstone. I'm thinking if I'm Jonah, I grew up hearing about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And while that was just a story that he heard and read about and, and would, would have been taught, this whole Nineveh thing, he was actually living. So he knew how wicked these people were firsthand. And it wasn't just a story that he heard told. And he had seen the atrocities and he had seen the wickedness. And I bet in his mind, no matter how bad he read Sodom and Gomorrah was, he thought Nineveh was worse because Nineveh was his current present enemy. And he thought, well, if God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, surely, surely God is gonna destroy these wicked, evil people. And I'm just gonna sit on the hill and wait for the fireworks. And that's what he did. Even after he knew that these people had repented, he still thought they weren't worthy of being saved, even after they repented. And then God does this thing with this plant and he does the same thing that he had been doing all along to Jonah. It had been happening all along in Jonah's life. It had happened all throughout the recorded stories that we have of Jonah. We see that during Jonah's time as a prophet, he was serving under the reign of an evil king, Jeroboam II. And normally when you read the Old Testament kings, when there's a bad king in place, bad things happen to the people of Israel because they're under wicked leadership that's turning the hearts of the people to serve other gods. And even though Jeroboam II was doing that, God still blessed them in the middle of that. Why did God do that? Because God will show mercy to who he wants to show mercy to. Because God is sovereign and God is good. And we don't understand fully the goodness of God because goodness in our eyes means everything's favorable towards us, right? But have you ever had something happen that wasn't favorable towards you? Did that change the fact that God's now all of a sudden not good anymore? Or did God still keep being good? So that must mean that our definition of good is different than God's definition of good. Because there's things that I've gone through in life that I can look back on that I didn't think were good at the time, but because God led me through it, I go, wow, God, you were good and I didn't even see it. Much like a parent, you know, we just came through the Halloween season, maybe you got a lot of candy, you know, for your kids and they went out and, you know, just racked up all this stuff. If you're a good parent, you didn't let them just sit there and eat all of the stuff that they got that night. You didn't let them do that, why? To a kid, it's good to eat all the candy. You're bad for telling them no. Why won't my parents let me have more? Because you know something they don't know. And you don't want to deal with their tummy ache in the middle of the night, right? <laughs> but they think it's not good, but you know it's good. Why? Why do you know it's good? Because you have a different vantage point than they have. God knows things are good that we don't understand that are good. And so trusting in God's definition of goodness means I have to submit my will to his will and say, Lord, your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Amen? And so here we see that God is showing Jonah he's going to show mercy on who he's going to show mercy on. And these people repented, and there was no promise of mercy being shown. But yet God still showed mercy. God showed mercy to the people of Nineveh. God showed mercy to the pagan sailors. 
that Jonah was sailing with when he was on his way to Tarshish. He showed mercy on them because these guys didn't even believe in God. And they were in the middle of that storm. And they had to trust God that if they threw this guy overboard, that God wasn't going to punish them for throwing him overboard. <laughs> they actually prayed that prayer. Do you remember in chapter 1? As they're like, you know, getting ready to heave ho, they're sitting here probably swinging his arms and legs, and they're going, oh, God, don't let this man's blood be on our hands. <laughs> Fingers crossed. And God calmed the seas and saved those guys. And they made a bunch of sacrifices to God and made all kinds of vows. They didn't know what to do. They, all they knew was that they needed to, like, honor this God who had just saved them, and God showed mercy on them. Did they deserve that because of something they did? No, they, God just showed mercy on them. God showed mercy on Jonah when he's floundering around in, in this tumultuous storm that's happening. They're in that body of water, and then this great fish comes along, and the great fish was the mercy of God yet again, delivering Jonah. The mercy of God was shown yet once more when God delivered him out of the belly of this great fish. God showed mercy upon the people of Nineveh. God shows mercy once again upon Jonah's life. When Jonah finally obeys and he goes and preaches and then he sits on this hill and he's angry and actually throwing all of this back in the face of God. Who do you think you are talking to God this way, right? Jonah, I mean, he's pretty gutsy talking to God this way after everything you've been through, buddy. And he still has the audacity to speak to God with this tone and this way. And what does God do? He shows him his grace. He comforts him. But then he also shows him his power by taking it away in an instant. Showing him that you want mercy for yourself, but you don't want it for other people. God shows him again. He sends the, the scorching winds. He sends the heat intensifies because God wills it to be so. And Jonah still doesn't get it. Jonah still is begging to die. And then God, the recorded words we have of God one last time, saying, Jonah, do you not get it? Like, should I not show mercy on these people? Did, did you not get all of this along the way? Could you not piece this together, Jonah? Could you not see my character, my nature? You see, God looks past our deeds and he sees our heart. And we say things like, well, God knows my heart. And we say that like it's a good thing. But folks, that's a scary statement. We say that to mean we're justifying our behaviors, our attitudes, our actions. Well, God knows my heart. Yeah, God knows your heart. Oh, yeah, he knows that too. That means all the things that I think in secret, all of those desires, all those wicked thoughts, all those things. God sees through all of the things that I do and he sees my heart. So don't say God sees my heart to comfort yourself because you think you're good. That should only amplify and magnify our need for Jesus <laughs> because God sees our heart, not because there's something in us that good, that's good. The Christian needs to recognize that there's nothing good in me except Jesus, and I desperately need Jesus because my goodness cannot save me no matter how good I try to be. Every world religion tries. People try in their own morality to save themselves. Only Jesus can save me. Not my good behavior, not my feeling of being a good person. That's the gospel. And here we see the gospel shared with Jonah by Jonah not getting what he deserved. By Jonah seeing God's goodness. By Jonah seeing and experiencing it. And these people then experiencing it. But then Jonah still thinking he's the good guy 
ends up becoming the very thing he ended up hating. Think about this. If Jesus said that murder is really an issue of the heart, and Jonah hated the Ninevites because of their murderous ways, if the murderers and the wicked, evil people repent, and now you have the person who thought he had the moral high ground because of the good things he was doing for God, now has the hatred and the evil in his heart, who's the evil person now? Who's the wicked person now? But I bet you if you would have asked Jonah, he still saw himself as the good guy. We get caught into the same trap, church. We think that we have the moral high ground because it wasn't right what was done to us. And I'm not saying it was. It wasn't right what that person said or what they did. It's not right. And we think we've somehow earned the right to be angry and bitter and hang on to those things. And then those things become so toxic in our lives that we don't even recognize it because we get so comfortable with the dysfunction and the toxicity that we have adopted it as normal. And then we hand it to the next generation below us. There's entire people groups that people have hatred and prejudice towards because they've been handed generational hatred. There are certain people of political persuasion that you have hatred in your heart towards. There are people of certain skin color that you may have hatred towards. Where did this come from? It came from people allowing the root of bitterness to be watered, allow it to take root in their heart, and all the while you think you have the moral high ground, you think you're the good guy, but you've actually become the very thing that God says, no, you need to deal with that before you come and offer me a sacrifice. You need to deal with that in your heart because there's something in there, and it may be family members, man, it may even be church, church people, pastors, church leaders, maybe um, Sunday school teacher from years ago, Maybe someone who you thought was a good mentor and a close friend and ended up wounding you. Whatever the case may be, all of us have these issues and we have to decide how we're going to move forward. Now, this is always hard for us because we feel like, well, if I'm a Christian, am I just supposed to be everybody's doormat and just supposed to like run all over me? No, no, not at all. That's not at all what grace and mercy and forgiveness suggests. Here's what you can do as a Christ follower. And my mentor shared this with me almost 10 years ago and I've shared this with many people and it's helped me understand forgiveness, reconciliation, communication, relationships. You have to understand that reconciliation and forgiveness is like a drawbridge. There are two sides to it and guess what? You only get the benefit of controlling one side. You can't control the other side. When you offer forgiveness, and you seek reconciliation, that's you lowering your half of the drawbridge. You cannot force the other person to, nor even if you could force them to, should you? Because some people try to manipulate to get people to lower their half of the drawbridge, and they do it in a false way, and it's not real, it's not genuine, it's not sincere, and therefore it's only temporary, and healing really isn't taking place. They're just telling you what they think that you want to hear. And so we try to manipulate, or we try to guilt trip to get someone to lower their half of the drawbridge. We try to make a case for why they should lower their half of the drawbridge and how we have the moral high ground because we lowered ours first. And then pride seeks into our heart. And now all of a sudden we're prideful because, well, look, I lowered my half. You need to lower your half. And then we'll go and tell our friends how good we were at lowering our half of the drawbridge and how they just didn't, you know. And now we feel better than those people. And now 
we've become the villain at this point and we don't even see it because we think we're superior. Are you seeing how evil this is? And how, how the enemy uses this as a tactic to actually keep us from being healed, reconciled, whole, and we are missing the gospel the whole time. And then we go around offering sacrifices to God and God's like, mm-mm, go handle your business. God's like, uh-uh. So I can't force the other person to lower their half. So what do I do? I mean, what do I do? Here's what you do. You do it as under the Lord. You lower your half of the drawbridge. You seek reconciliation. And you go to that person without any expectation of what their response is going to be. You're doing it as under the Lord, not because of what they're going to do in response. Because here, I don't know if you're messed up like me. <laughs> Maybe you are. I ha- I, I'm, I'm, I'm a high-functioning, dysfunctional person who... who plays things out in their head like little mini movies before I deal with conflict. Like I'll sit around and imagine what's going to happen and I'll almost think of what I'm gonna say and then I'll think of what they're gonna say and there's like this little movie happening in my head. And I'll try to consider all the options because I think I know the person that I'm gonna go talk to and confront and I'll say, well, they're probably gonna do this and then I'm gonna say this and ooh, then they're gonna say that and I get all worked up emotionally over it and nothing's even happened. It's all just in my mind. And... (laughs) You're like, we hired this guy? Yeah, you did. (laughs) But I'll play this thing out in my head, and then I'll already have determined what they're going to say, how they're going to respond, and I'll figure all this out before I ever go talk to them. Or maybe I decide after going through that little play in my head that uh, they're not worth talking to. It's not going to work out. How many times have you said something like, I would go try to reconcile, but I've tried that before and it didn't work. Or you've said, I know them well enough because I'm married to them. I know how they're going to respond. Or the last time I went and tried to talk to them, it didn't work out so well. We've all said things like that, right? So what we're saying is I didn't get the outcome that I wanted, so therefore I'm not going to do the thing God told me to do. So here's what you do. You lower your half of the drawbridge and you do it as unto the Lord, not because of the response you get. If you get the response, praise God, hallelujah. But don't raise your half of the drawbridge just because you don't get the response. Keep it lowered and remind them as it's appropriate that your half of the drawbridge is lowered. Be, be wise with that, but keep that relationship on your side open as best as you can, as wise as you can, and don't allow pride to sneak in during that process. Keep yourself humble before the Lord because here's what you don't know. Put away your crystal ball. Stop the little play in your head. Stop the movie. Somebody needs to yell, cut. Somebody needs to stop making this movie in your head, and it's you. Because you need to stop predetermining what other people are going to say or do, no matter how well you know them. And, And maybe they do react that way. Maybe you were right, but who cares? That's not the point. You're doing it as unto the Lord. Amen? You're doing it because this is obedience to God and I'm submitting to God because what you don't know is what God's dealing with them behind the scenes. You don't know how prayers have been softening even the hardest of hearts. You don't know what challenge they're facing that has caused them to actually seek God when you said, 
I don't know if there's hope for them. But it's your job to keep the half of the drawbridge load, lowered on your end because God is working behind the scenes in ways and in timings you don't know and it ain't none of your business to know. God will do it in his timing when he wants to do it. You be faithful to do your part and trust God to work on the other half and do his part. Amen? So for you to say, this person will never change, is you saying, God, you don't have enough power to change that person. For you to say, this person's going to respond this way, is you saying, God, this is how this person is. Just like Jonah was telling God, this is why I went to Tarsh- fled from Tarshish in the first, uh, went to Tarshish in the first place. This is why I was running away from Nineveh. This is why I was going the other direction. Because I knew that this would happen. I know these people. I know you. And we do the same thing. All the while thinking he's the good guy. And the enemy's getting a hold of his heart. And then we do this thing where we get so comfortable with our bitterness and it becomes a part of who we are that we don't even recognize it as bitterness anymore because we think we're somehow superior and we share it with other people. We share it with people who weren't even involved and now they're offended for us. Like you're mad at people you've never met before. You're mad at celebrities and politicians you've never met (laughs) because you sit around and talk about it. You sit around and gossip about it. You sit around and talk negatively about it. And you're angry at people. You're angry at ministers you've never met. You're angry at all sorts of folks. And we get mad at folks that we've never met. And we keep fueling that thing by keeping our mouth on it. Let me tell you something. Your words are either creating and building up or they're tearing down and destroying. Your words are never void of power. They're always doing two, one of two things. They're either speaking life or they're speaking death and destruction, always, all the time. And out of the abundance of the heart, the what? Mouth speaks. So this is all coming from my heart because these words are coming out of my, and I'm either spreading this hatred and spreading this anger, spreading this bitterness to people who are just poor little innocent bystanders, (laughs) or I'm speaking life and I'm trusting in God and obeying him. And it's hard because we get used to it. Do you know that there arrives in every teenager's life a time where they don't realize how funky they are? And if you've ever had teenagers or ever been a teenager, you were funky and didn't know it. I'm like, how do you not smell that? Like, how, how do you not smell that? And they're like, smell what? What is that? And you're like looking, you're like, what happened? Did a bomb go off in here? And you're in their room and you're like, it's your shoes or it's your socks. And they're like, what? I didn't smell that. Of course you didn't because you're used to it. And if I hang around your funk and I smell your funk, I'm going to get used to it too. And then I think it's normal and it's something that's toxic, that's permeating, that now I'm used to. I don't want to get used to your funk. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't listen to my brothers and sisters in Christ when they're hurting, right? It doesn't mean that I can't give counsel and a good loving ear, but a, but a person who loves another person will not just sit there and fuel that anger. You can vent, but I'm not going to speak words that are going to add fuel to the fire. I'm going to actually try to help point you towards Jesus, point you towards grace, and help you to keep your half of the drawbridge lowered and trust God for the rest, because this part... The second part will happen when it's right. And maybe it doesn't even happen in your lifetime. Ooh, that's hard. Maybe you're dealing with someone who's already passed away. What do I do then? You still 
God, extend that grace and that forgiveness. Because God wants you healed, amen? Because God wants your offering and your worship to be pure and undefiled. Jesus wants us to be able to approach him with the, with the offering and the gift and the sacrifice without having all of this tying us down and hurting us. Go over to Hebrews chapter 12. Let's read this scripture real quick. Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 15, the writer of Hebrews said this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. He said, see that nobody is dealing with this thing on your account, that other people are being defiled because of your root of bitterness. You see, the danger in not dealing with the heart issue of bitterness is that it affects innocent bystanders. And here's the big idea. Stop the root of bitterness from growing by allowing grace to reveal it and good to replace it. I'll say that again. I want you to get this. Write this down. Share this with your friends. Stop the root of bitterness from growing by allowing grace to reveal it and good to replace it. So here's my question for us throughout this entire series. As we've been looking at the words of Jesus and as we've been contrasting that with the life of Jonah, what is the Holy Spirit using Jonah to reveal your heart to your heart? What is God using Jonah's life in contrast with what Jesus said to soften your heart and to help you see, to maybe let the scales of blindness fall off your eyes it's always us thinking, man, I wish so-and-so was here. Oh, man, I need to make sure they get this link and watch this or hear this. Stop thinking about them and start thinking about what's God trying to deal with me about. Because they're not here right now. You can share it with them. That's great. But you're here. So that means what does God want you to deal with? Because God knew you were going to be here today. Did you know that? <laughs> what? God knew you were going to be here. God knew you were going to hear this. God knew, knew that this would be the day that you would be confronted with things that you had forgotten, had become so familiar that you, you, you just accepted it as a part of your life. And God's going, no, I want that uprooted. I want that healed. We have to stop allowing that root of bitterness to grow. And we have to say, God, I, I, I want to ask you and your grace and your mercy to reveal it. And then help me to replace that uprooted root with something good. Jonah was critical. Jonah was selfish. Jonah was ungrateful. Jonah was self-righteous. And he didn't even see it. And church, I just don't want us to keep moving on thinking we're doing good and we're missing the fact that maybe, maybe we're ungrateful. Maybe we're bitter. Maybe we haven't healed from this. Maybe we haven't given this to Jesus like we thought we had. Maybe we thought we forgave and we really haven't because every time that name comes up, we just get so angry. Every time that situation comes up, hair on the back of our neck stands up, we get angry and we wanna just talk about it all over again as if it happened yesterday. And God's saying, I'm, I'm calling you to extend grace. I'm calling you to extend mercy. I'm calling you to show the same type of love and forgiveness that was shown to you. Well, I'm not ready. Well, God didn't say when you're ready. I don't, 
I don't know where that part is. It's too fresh. Well, again, I don't, I don't know where that is. If you find it, let me know and I, I'll correct. I, I see that he's wanting us to walk in unity and forgiveness, especially as brothers and sisters in Christ towards one another. I want to see our church unified and strengthened and walking in love and walking in spirit of unity, laying aside our preferences, laying aside our ideological differences and saying, you know what, what brings us together, Christ is more important than anything else, than anything else. And letting that bring healing, letting that bring confidence and unity and a spirit of serving one another, not just looking to get what I want. So we need to replace our negativity with praise towards God. I'll, I'll read one more scripture. Ephesians chapter four, verse 22. Paul writes this. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and it's corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, put away all falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For, we're not, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I know it's not always easy, folks, but I want to obey and I want to trust in God to take care of the rest. So maybe let's take the next just few moments and allow the Holy Spirit just to work in every heart here because you're all thinking about something and you're all maybe remembering someone, maybe fresh maybe something old that God's saying it's time to deal with that and I don't know what your next step is but I would encourage you let it be something that you're seeking reconciliation guard your heart from pride in the process guard your heart from feeling like you're superior because you're the one doing this and, and, and here's what you got to do one last thing for you to replace it with something good we got to hold each other accountable church because we all can slip into negativity right? All of us. I don't care who you are, how nice you are, how friendly you are, we can all slip into it. We have to hold each other accountable. By when the machine of gossip gets started, we have to shut it down and love each other enough to say, you know what? I feel like this conversation is going a direction that's not going to be good. And, and I, I think that let's just pray for that situation or that person and let's replace our frustration. Let's replace our disappointment. Let's replace our hurt. Let's replace that with prayer 
and actually thankfulness to God because we need to remember we were forgiven much. And even though I might not agree, even though I might be hurt, I, you know what? It's not good for me to fuel that root of bitterness. And if we begin to act like that towards one another, that's love, that's reconciliation, that's speaking the truth in love. That's gonna be a church that's unified like nobody's business. That's gonna be a church that knows how to love each other and love those outside of our fellowship and bring other people to Christ because of the love that they see modeled. That's a city set on a hill that has a light that can't be hidden. That's salt, amen? That's light. I want us to be those kinds of people, that kind of church that love each, loves each other that kind of way. So let's pray and ask God to help us because man, we can't do it on our own, folks. God, help us see this. Open our eyes because we all miss it. We all can get caught up in pride. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to forgive those who have trespassed against us as you have so richly and freely forgiven us much. Let us extend the same type of grace we wish to receive and let us take Jesus seriously at his word and unify this body like never before to accomplish your will and your plan. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.